mutual friend of Pastor Joey's and mine had a uh, death in the family to deal with. We are saddened for the circumstances, but it provides uh, the Sims family with some gospel opportunity with family down south, and so we want to make sure to be praying for them and uh, even praying for us as we engage in this holy endeavor of studying the Word of God together. Would you bow with me for prayer? Our God, we bow before you in humility, recognizing that our heart's desire is to listen to you, to hear you speak to us through your word, revealing more of your person and your plan, what you expect of us. And yet we find ourselves so distracted, so encumbered, by the, our unredeemed humanness, the flesh that we reside in. Whether we come to you distracted by physical pain or by the distractions of impending moves and uh, all that that entails, we pray that your gospel would be unpacked more as we reflect upon your soon coming, Lord Jesus, that we sang about. Help us not to be distracted in hearing your word this morning. Help us not to be derailed and detoured from all the voices that surround us on radio and on the television and in so-called Christian books to detract our focus, to get too comfortable here in this world knowing that this world is not our home, we are just passing through. Help us to be faithful in that passing through time. We pray these things in our Savior's name, amen. As you join me in Second Peter, I was reminded of the Apostle Paul's solemn words as he is training Timothy, for the gospel ministry, what Christian ministry looks like, what the church is and how it operates, how we are to conduct our lives in this momentary time until Jesus returns for us. He told Timothy to realize in the last days that we live in, difficult times will come. Timothy And other Christians who read the inspired Word of God, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Christian, those that profess the name of Christ, that are in Christ, who have been set free from your sin, be reminded 
that there are always those waiting to derail you from the central hope of Christ coming again. His coming unexpectedly with power and great glory. Regardless of any amillennialism or other wrong views of the end times, we all agree that Jesus is coming again. Amen? And He's coming quickly at an hour that we don't expect. So anticipate. Stand against the, 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 the tide of those that would say that the biblical accounts are mere fables. Mere words of man. Those are words of false teachers. This is the living and active Word which works in you mightily. The Lord's imminent future return has been the believer's moment-by-moment hope that Christ is returning for His church and will ever be with the Lord from that moment forth. Peter gives just an example of a more basic issue. Yes, we know that false teachers do not submit to the authority of Scripture. They do not believe it is sufficient for faith and practice. They, 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 uh, the, the, word does, uh, the word from their pulpit does not originate with God. It originates from their own thoughts. We know that. But one example that Peter gives us of what they will deny is the imminent return of Jesus. False teachers, they do not bow to the Word of God. They let experience define success. They formulate great swelling words and powerful orations. To, to, even to evangelicals, those that would find themselves in the evangelical camp, though they are higher critics, to them the Word of God becomes the Word of God as they experience it. It is not objective meaning frozen on the pages of Scripture, handed down by faithful men for you and I to unpack its meaning by its historical context and the grammar and the syntax of the original language as written. Don't be detoured, beloved. Focus on the future hope, not on false fables. As we look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, I'd invite you to notice with me two contrasting responses to biblical revelation. Two competing world systems regarding a history of how it all began and His promise of where it's all headed. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There are two groups here at this gathering of Newtown Bible Church. There are two responses that people give to the Word of God. Two responses to the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient Word. That first response is given in verses 1 and 2. Believers remember it. Those that are in Christ can't get enough of biblical truth. They remember it. So as Peter turns from the subject of deception, destruction, and doom of false teachers, chapter 2, he does so to turn to the hope of Christ's return for the beloved. The agapetoi. Those that he addresses in a very pastoral concern and tone that he'd already done earlier in chapter 2 and will continue to do throughout chapter 3. Speaking to those beloved ones that are in Jesus Christ. And as he addresses the beloved, as he bears his heart, he shares his reason for writing these epistles, First and Second Peter He's done so for the express purpose of stirring up their remembrance. He'd already done so back in chapter 1, in verse number 13. He said, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. That's something Christians need a lot of. Whether you will admit it or not, beloved, you're just like me, you're forgetful. We are forgetful. We need much reminding of what we know to be true. That is one of the blessings of the cyclical nature, the cyclical teaching of Scripture, because book after book of the Bible addresses some of the same key doctrines. When we do, like we've been doing in adult Sunday school, systematic theology, and we look at one doctrine, the doctrine of man or the doctrine of sin, we look at the whole enchilada, Genesis to Revelation on that truth. How it unpacks those truths. And how that each biblical author is in perfect harmony with each other. So we need that stirring up of remembrance. In contrast to those that are walking according to the flesh, those who despise authority, chapter 2, verse 10, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, these false teachers who despise authority, in contrast to them. Believers are those who live by the internal principles of the authoritative Word of God. So Peter, rather than appealing to felt needs of his listeners or what naturally panders to their flesh, as many false teachers of our day do, Peter appealed to their minds. Notice how he addresses the beloved. I'm, I'm, I'm writing to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Your pure, unsullied minds. 
Maybe uh, your translation renders that sincere. Literally meaning unmixed with alloy or judged in light of the sun. You don't have to be schooled in the New Testament for too long before you realize that pottery salesmen would hide the imperfections in their pots with wax. And so the only way to know if you're getting a real good deal and he's not pawning off a cracked pot to you is hold it up to the sunlight. And so as was common in the day, the apostles of the New Testament would would pick that up. Uh, Believers' lives are to be without wax. They are to be sincere. The real deal When held up to the sunshine, what you see is what you get. They are in private what they are in public. As Philippians 1.10 says, that we are pure and blameless unto the day of Christ. No hidden motives, no pretense like the false teachers would have. And here the apostle connects this sincerity, this authenticity to their understanding indicating they are to be clear thinkers. The clarity, the perspicuity of the mind, to have a clear understanding, seeing everything through the lens of Scripture intelligently and clearly. To have good judgment. In one word, they exercise discernment. It is unsullied. You know, as I was dialoguing with some, some brothers this week on the topic of theodicy, theodicy is, theodicy is the simple word that uh, theologians give to the, the attempt to justify God. How can there be a gracious, sovereign God in a world that is so evil and there's so much pain? And I'd urge the brothers to have a well-reasoned argument in their theodicy. To have a credible answer. To do as Peter says in his first epistle, 1 Peter 3.15, to have a reason for the hope that lies within. Have you thought through the arguments so that you don't look like the buffoon on the job? Oh, one of those weak-minded Christian sorts. Have you got an answer? Having studied the Scripture enough and thought through a consistent, thoroughly biblical answer. You notice I'm not saying on which topic. It doesn't matter if it's the end times like Peter addresses here or creation or the clarity of Scripture and our literal literal hermeneutic. Developing discernment. How do we do it? It's by remembering God's truth. Not that you remember every verse of the hundreds of verses you have memorized But you're digging deep to cut the word straight. You don't want to uh, say it wrong. Say, thus saith the Lord, when indeed God did not say what you're suggesting He said. So you're digging into the word to cut it straight. You know what you believe and you've thought through why you believe it to give a credible answer. Even memorizing the text of Scripture and asking questions of the biblical text. Well, I know this is what I believe, but what are my opponents going to say? Getting the 
your sources lined up on your bookshelves, whether it's Bible difficulties of how can I make this text harmonize with this text, knowing that they don't contradict each other. Getting some good Bible study books and some good commentaries. If we are humble, we will admit that we cannot remember all that we have learned. And so we need much reminder. In uh, trying to promote people to memorize Scripture, I've often told them that you know, the, the Holy Spirit's not going to bring verses to mind at the stoplight or in the dialogue with another that you hadn't hidden in your heart. And it was good enough for David. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Study it to know what God means by what He says. Because you can't remember what you haven't learned, what you haven't gotten straight. And lest you think that I'm inserting a bigger deal preaching the white areas in between the verses. Notice how he follows that up in verse 2. He says it again. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Holy prophets used by New Testament writers to speak of true prophets of God who penned Scripture. Those whom God said so that when they say, thus saith the Lord, that is indeed what He sent them on an errand to say. Many false teachers claim to be prophets. And this is no small era in our day. There's only one gift of prophecy, and it is an infallible gift. It is without error. In spite of those promoting fallible words of prophecy or congregational prophesying, you look at the gift of prophecy given in the Old Testament. People held them in a high standard. You get one word of prophecy wrong, what was your end? Stoning! If a prophet comes to you, and what he says is going to come to pass does not come to pass, is what God said. It was an infallible gift. To be wrong was to be stoned to death in the Old Testament. The infallible prophet never gets it wrong. Never. Study it. As we're reading through the Bible together, as you're reading through the Old Testament, take note, you're never going to find where a true prophet of God, and the reason why it's an infallible prophecy was it was divine revelation. God sent them on errands. God revealed His message. They were speaking for God, and God never gets it wrong. The Spirit of God moved them along, as Peter said earlier. For Romani, moved them along. Just in the same way that a wind moves the sails of a ship, so the Spirit of God moved these writers of Scripture along so that what they penned was indeed the Word of God without error. Infallible prophets. They spoke forth God's truth for present circumstances and long-range warnings of coming judgment. Bear it out. 
Jot down Psalm 50, verses 1 through 4, where Asaph writes of coming judgment. Or how about Isaiah in Isaiah 13, verses 10 through 13. You might think, well, he was speaking of judgment on Babylon, and they sure were judged. Well, you don't have to turn too long in Isaiah's prophecy to see his long-range predictions. In chapter 24, verses 19 through 23, this is judgment upon the whole earth. Malachi prophesies for God in Malachi 4, 1 and 2 of warning about judgment coming, judgment coming. When they saw a prophet of God coming to town, they knew one of the things they were going to say. Nineveh knew what Jonah was going to say. Forty days hence, and God's destroying. Now, they knew judgment was coming. It's common themes throughout the minor prophets. Micah, chapter 1 and verse 4. We're told that the mountains will melt under God and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire. And as my kids take off their snow suits and take the, take the, uh, the snow off and melt it by the, by the uh, wood stove, that's the picture Micah says, you know, you, the, the earth is going to melt in a fervent heat just like wax before a fire. That's the judgment coming, that they would come to town in a similar vein. If you are in Christ, you were made an ambassador of God, not a prophet, but an ambassador compelling men to be reconciled with God and to tell them that God, holy God is willing to reconcile Himself with sinful man who are by nature His enemies. We tell how a holy Creator fashioned them for His glory. How that they have broken God's law will be judged forever in hell and can't do anything good enough to merit God's favor. That's the news you and I as ambassadors of the new covenant take to people. We tell people to flee to Christ for mercy and salvation so that they can experience His eternal presence of blessing and not be cast out into the eternal conscious torment flames of hell. We're ambassadors, but there are no more prophets. Furthermore, there are no more apostles. People call themselves modern-day apostles. Notice what Peter reminds them of. Let me stir you up your sincere mind by way of remembering the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. What is the standard? What is the guide? You take somebody that comes to you and they claim to be a prophet. Does what they say line up with this? There are no more prophets. Somebody comes to you, they claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Does it line up with what Scripture says, what the, the, uh, the measuring rod of Scripture says. And if Scripture teaches us that first and foremost, somebody needs to be a witness of the resurrected Lord, sorry, that disqualifies you. The gift of prophecy is done away. The gift of apostleship, none have seen the risen Christ, requirement one of being an apostle. What's Peter want to remind us of? What they wrote. Whether it be Old Testament prophets or New Testament prophets. John the Baptist was the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. 
They penned the infallible revelation of the person and plan of God. It was them who laid the foundation of the church. Paul tells us that in his theology. That the church was built on the foundation of their work. No longer these gifted ones, and so God gave other gifted ones, pastors and teachers, who would equip the saints for the work of the ministry. No matter how much we love some of our hero preachers, those whose expositions faithfully communicate God's Word, and no matter how much I like to think that some of my sermons have been inspired, they are not. I've buried several, given them a good death, not on the internet, not on tapes. Peter says, remember what you were previously taught. Don't fall for the newfangled ideas of false teachers. Look for those that are going to remain faithful of the words of the prophets and apostles. That's whom the Lord speaks through. He returns, in essence, to his first chapter. Remember how chapter 1 ends? In verse, verses 20 and 21. Know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. I trust that if you have your write-in Bible, you've put the word origin, because that's a better rendition of the word. No prophecy of, is, is of any personal hidden secret origin. Somebody comes to you and say, I got a word from the Lord. Yeah, is it the word of the Lord? Then it's not a word from the Lord. It's not a matter of one's own origin. For prophecy, no prophecy was ever made by an action of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke for God. Our message doesn't originate with us. We're just waiters that deliver the message like, like a waiter delivers the food hot without messing it up or you dock his tip. Do the same to the preachers that are not preaching the Word of God. We don't make it up. We simply go to the Word. We unpack its meaning of the text that God has given. So when it comes to the issue of origins that the false teachers get wrong, go to the Word on origins. Go to the Word on end times, those that deny Jesus is coming, because all the Bible teaches He's coming again. So believers wait for Christ's return. They are reminded of the truth, the accuracy, the authority, the sufficiency, the inspiration. We submit to the Word, remember its truths. That is the biblical believer's response. What about scoffers? They laugh at it. Verses 3 through 7. Scoffers laugh. To them, judgment, the Lord's return, it's fable. If I haven't told you before, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was doing street preaching in Boston and this kid from Berkeley School of Music, I'm shaking in my booties preaching the gospel on the streets, and this young college student my age stands up and says, oh, so you're going to preach Jesus to us, huh? And he's scoffing, he's laughing. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is truth. You better listen, buddy. 
Typical response of an unbeliever. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. What is it to them? Foolishness. Oh, wives' table, tales. Notice, first of all, Peter's point, verse 3. Know it. Know this, first of all, in the last days. Mockers are going to come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Know it. Though this, is, though this is not an imperative in the Greek, it's got that force of an imperative. We are commanded by, by the authority of the Apostle Peter to know it. Excuses or, or ignorance is not allowed. Know this, that the problem isn't the word. It's their desires. That's the issue. The false teachers trying in their flawed, fallen logic to figure out, you know, if I submit to the law of God, then it condemns me and I have to give up my stuff, just like the rich young ruler we've studied for a couple of weeks. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost me my sin. To, when, when, you, when, when scoffers hear the message of the gospel, the, they, they want to follow their own lusts. Give me my stuff. Give me my sin. Back in chapter 2 and verse 10, we were told this is characteristic of false teachers. They, they love their sin. If to submit to the law of God means that I'm condemned and I'll be undone, let me just ignore the fact that God is my creator and God is my judge. Their walk, their lifestyles, out of control, living like there's no law of God as they indulge in sexual lusts. They don't want to reckon with sin. And Jesus tells us that I didn't come for good people, those that are, are good in their own eyes, those that are self-righteous. I didn't come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. Those that realize that the gospel is all about sin. Judgment's all about sin. Jesus came to redeem sinners. Those who recognize their depravity, their spiritual bankruptcy, their lack of hope without Christ, their need to cry, God, give me mercy. Me who have broken your law. But Peter says, in the last days, the eschaton, it will be characterized by mockers. So we shouldn't be put off, but we should be put on guard. When we recognize by divine revelation in Scripture, this is a fact of our day. Don't be surprised. Matter of fact, before Paul ever left the church at Ephesus, remember how he charged the elders in Acts chapter 20? In verse number 29, he says, I know. See, Paul didn't live in a fantasy world. He said, I know after my departure, savage wolves will, will come in among you not from without, we need to be so worried about the liberals that we know are wrong. It's those that claim to be evangelicals, claim to believe the Bible, claim to believe the gospel. From your own selves, from your midst, they'll arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. They're not going to spare the flock. That's Peter's point. So don't be put off, but be put on guard. 
Don't be taken by surprise. They're going to rise up from within the church. Jude tells us the same thing. Matter of fact, by divine command, it is an imperative here in Jude 18. In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Know it. Knowing that judgment is coming for unbelievers, knowing that God is going to right all wrongs, eschatology has a purifying hope. Jot down First, uh, first John 3, verses 1 through 3. He that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. If we're going to be like him, we might as well get like him now. Eschatology is a purifying hope to the believer But unbelievers want an eschatology that fits their lewd living. They want to live like there's no accountability and no payday. Commentator Michael Green says it so well in his commentary. He says, anthropocentric hedonism. I like that. That's got a good preaching ring to it. Anthropocentric hedonism. Man-centered pleasure-seeking always mocks at the idea of ultimate standards and a final division between the saved and the lost. For men who live in the world of the relative, the claim that the relative will be ended by the absolute is nothing short of ludicrous to them. For men who nourish a belief in human self-determination and perfectibility, the very idea that we are accountable and dependent is a bitter pill to swallow. No wonder they mocked. You do away with the Creator God of Genesis and do away with the judge at the end of the age of Revelation, you get a clean conscience. What do I have to worry about? I got here by my own stuff, I'll go out by my own stuff. Peter makes a point to be aware of this. This is a reality. This is characteristic of our day and age. The last day. Notice in verse 4, a particular example. We could fill in so many examples of what they question, what part of divine revelation unbelievers want to throw out. Here's one Peter gives by inspiration. Here's a question they pose in their mocking. Where's the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was in the beginning of creation. They replace imminency with uniformitarianism. Let me explain. As I've already said, the New Testament church, the early church, was always looking... You look at the writers. They always wrote as if it was in their generation Jesus was coming again. They lived like it could take place today. We sang the songs today like it could be today. We live in that reality. It is the moment-by-moment purifying hope. I don't want Jesus to find me in the middle of my sin. I want Him to find me right in the middle of obedience, right in the middle of evangelizing sinners so we we, we capture every moment for the kingdom. That is uh, a knowledge of the imminent return of Jesus. And so wanting to compromise and uh, have excuse for their lewd living, they say, it's just continuing as it always has. Everything's uniform. You look around us, God has never stepped into time and never will. 
Think about those two issues. The church has always treated imminency, living like Jesus could come at any moment. As Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, in a moment, in a what? Twinkling of an eye, he could come. He could come before I get done preaching and you said amen to that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. We're, we'll wait for God's Son from heaven. You recall one of that, those favorite passages for a funeral when you've got a loved one who died in the Lord. We shall not prevent those who are asleep because there's going to be a great trumpet of heaven that sounds, the archangel. As one preacher put it, God's going to toot, we're going to scoot, we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And from the moment of the rapture of the church, the church is forever in Christ's presence. That is our hope. That it could happen at any moment. The parousia, the coming of Christ, that which keeps us going, keeps us keeping on till our dying breath. Peter preached on his coming as he preached in Solomon's portico in Acts 3. And he said, repent, be converted that Christ might come. What did he understand? He understood that Jesus is not coming again until the last soul has been saved. Paul taught on his coming to the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians. Christ promised repeatedly. He said in Matthew 24, 30, that He's going to be coming on, on the clouds with power and great glory. Even, even the angels, when they saw Jesus ascending into heaven after His resurrection in Acts chapter 1, he's, why are you gawking at heaven? This same Jesus who went and this man is going to come in the same way. A friend who went to seminary wrote in his book, Living a Life of Hope, explains it this way. He says, the hope of Christ's coming was of, of paramount importance for the early church. In fact, its certainty was so real that first century believers would greet one another with the term, what? Maranatha. Maranatha, meaning, Lord, come quickly. Instead of being frightened by the possibility, they clung to it as the culmination of everything that they believed. Not surprisingly, the New Testament reflects this intense anticipation by referencing Jesus' return, whether directly or indirectly, in every New Testament book except Philemon and 3 John, unquote. The imminent coming of Jesus Christ. Peter says, remember. Remember the truth. Remember the words that the prophets proclaimed to you, and they spoke of Jesus coming again. Jeremiah's critics mocked, and they said, where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled in Jeremiah 17, 15. The Israelites of Malachi's day fatigued the Lord Harping, saying, where is the God of justice? Malachi 2.17. The skeptics of Ezekiel's day. They doubted God's judgment and they snickered in, in uh, uh, Ezekiel 12.22. The days go by. Every vision, vision comes to nothing. The same way the scoffers of Peter's day. 
Where's the promise of His coming? Things continue in the same way they've always continued. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, this is the term always referring to the Old Testament patriarchs, ever since they went to the grave, and this is what liberal critics still do today, evangelical higher critics doubt God's Word too quickly and they value their own opinions too highly. Rather than submitting to divine revelation, they give their own speculations. They say all things continue. All things continue just as it was from the beginning. This is written in the present tense, emphasizing a continual, unbroken pattern. Ever since we got here, whether we crawled out of the primeval ooze and became what we are through millions of years of evolutionary process, things have been stable. They've been unchanging. Where events like the parousia, the instantaneous return of Jesus just doesn't happen. Everything's progressing with order, with regularity, and that forbids something dramatic. That's what they say. If they deny Genesis, they'll deny Revelation. This is the theory of uniformitarianism or naturalism, that all natural phenomena have operated uniformly since the beginning. I say heresy. I say wrong. The foundational issue is a rejection of scriptural inerrancy and authority. In particular, they reject the promise of the parousia, repeated so often in scripture, Jesus is coming at any time. They deny that. Genesis record shows again and again creation's dependence on what God said. And instantaneously it happened. You just look at the first chapter of Genesis. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, verse 26, verse 29. Instantaneous, dramatic act of God. God speaking and all of a sudden it happened. So James, or excuse me, Peter intends on dismantling their argument you guys pop the question, where's the sign of His return? Where's the promise of His coming? Everything's been uniform ever since, so He schools them. Verses 5, 6, and 7. As He dismantles their argument, jot down, first of all, divine fiat creation. Verse 5. The instantaneous creative act of God. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Notice that one little word, word, word. In order for, for Peter to, to uh, introduce his argument, the operative Hebrew word is bara, God said. And in your Bible readings, you saw that a lot as you're going through Genesis. God said, and it was so. God said, and it did. 
By His Word, all holds together. Colossians 1.17, the physical universe was created and preserved and maintained by Jesus Christ. By His Word. That's the power of the omnipotent God. God used no previous material, but spoke it into existence. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, He formed everything. He spoke it into existence by the word of His power. It was momentous. It was a cataclysmic event. An explosive six-day made up of 24-hour literal days. A six-day creation explosive account. Peter says that's how it happened. They maintain... uh, This escapes their notice. They don't read the word about God's word of speaking into existence. A cataclysmic event. Divine fiat creation. Escapes their notice. This truth is concealed from them due to their hardness of heart. A lack of teachability. A lack of humility. A lack of willingness for the Creator to stand in judgment and instruct them on how we got here. They're unaware. The, the New King James uh, renders this willfully ignorant or willfully reject. I forget which. I was reading it this week. One commentator suggests a rendering this way, quote, For they shut their eyes to this fact. That is the prideful posture of their hearts. This perpetual conti- condition they maintain, they don't want to know. This is their will. This is their wish. This is their desire that they maintain a lack of teachability. It escapes their notice. Read it. They'll ignore it. See, they don't receive the truth because they're committed to error. God's Word's clear. Theologians call that perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture. You read the Bible, it is clear, it is understandable, not to the unsaved mind. They're blind to the truth. It's hidden to them. They shut their eyes to the fact of creation. Yes, have an, have an argument for the creative act of Genesis 1 through 11, first chapters of Genesis, but realize many will reject it. They're blind to it. Though we answer a fool as their folly deserves, in wisdom at the right time, we need to not answer a fool according to their folly. Move on to one that will hear the gospel. Move on to the next audience. Because you cannot reason with one intent on loving sin and rejecting truth. Peter dismantles their argument. They say, where's the promise of His coming? Everything is natural. There's been no dramatic intervention. Proof number one, creation. Proof number two, not only a cataclysmic creation, but a cataclysmic flood. Verse verse 6. Insert, again, Genesis. The world at that time was destroyed because it was flooded with water. The world at that time. You need to recognize as they are trying in their fallen logic to rationalize that everything is natural, everything continues as it was, and the only way to explain the rock strata and everything else 
is by millions of years hogwash. You take billions of gallons of water, pour it out instantaneously, you're going to have compression, and I'm not going to get into the creation science of it all at this time. There was a cataclysmic flood. Peter says that they're blind to it. Recognize that pre-flood world is different from what you observe today. It was different. It was very different from what we observe. Their argument is so flawed, Peter says, just like any argument of our day, whether it be, be Bill Nye's or anybody else's. The antediluvian world is referenced here was a literal world. The then world, literally, the then world. Peter already referred to it back in chapter 2. God flooded it. God changed everything. And as He spoke the world into existence, instantaneously, cataclysmic, worldwide, He sent a flood. There was an end of the age of those who lived long years. You're not going to have, after the flood, you're not going to have more Methuselahs. Ages were shortened extremely. Vastly different climate in which it had never rained before. And from the flood on, there's rain. Even when there's droughts out in Southern Cal, there's rain. The world was covered by a water canopy at that time. It protected people from the harmful rays of the sun. Read it out. Genesis 7, inserted here in verse 6. That's what Peter refers to. The first world was destroyed by a worldwide flood. It happened from two, two directions, from above and below. Not only was there the waters from below bursting forth where the earth cracked open, the gas, the dust, the water, and the air burst upward, the water came canopy came falling down. This is a horrendous deluge, such as the earth had never seen, and praise God for His promise of the rainbow we'll never see again. This horrendous deluge was produce, produced the results that geologists confirm when they are not hampered and blinded by human presupposition of a uniformitarian process that everything's normal like it's always been. God burst onto the scene and created everything. God burst into the scene and flooded it all. And here Peter makes a connection, the third point in his argument. There was the then and there is the now. Verse 7, by His word, the present, not the then world, but the now world, the present heavens and earth, they're being reserved for fire. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it ain't so. The present, the now earth, though it's different in form and though you don't see the reservation ticket, it is reserved, it is stored up for judgment by fire. God said, I'll never again flood the earth. But Peter says he's going to do something just as cataclysmic. The first earth perished by water at the command of God. But the false teachers cannot do away with judgment or destruction no matter how much they scoff. This present earth, Peter says, is going to be destroyed by, by fire just as his word says. Fire used throughout Scripture, often speaking of judgment, where the Ancient of Days with His fiery flaming throne 
exercises absolute authority. Where Isaiah says that the Lord will come in fire to render his anger and fury. Destruction of the world by fire is pictured in the prophets, though it's not uh, specified. Past world destroyed by God's word and power. The world that's on reservation today, according to the word of God, is going to be an implosion by fire. It's all going to melt up. As God has directly acted in the past, He will end it by burning and judging the ungodly, just as cataclysmically. So Christian, don't get derailed. Detours all around us. The Old Testament Scriptures, along with the rest of Scriptures, are an accurate word from God. Though God is patient, He has put the world on reservation for judgment. And so, we seek to be faithful ambassadors, telling people to flee to Jesus. Flee from the wrath to come. The second coming of Jesus is taught clearly and literally in the Bible. And it ought to impact the way we live. Whether it be in purity or the promised hope. If you don't know Christ today, recognize that the universe was created by God. It was judged by Him through a worldwide flood and will be judged again. But notice that God's gracious hand and delay is afforded you. It's afforded you time to repent today. Today's the day of salvation. Today is the Lord's day. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't delay. Don't refuse. Tomorrow's the devil day. You'll never do it. Flee to Christ. Yeah, you think about that account that Peter refers to of the flood. It had never rained before, and God raised up a godly man, Noah, to preach, a preacher of righteousness to tell people, flee to, flee to, flee to, flee to God for mercy. It's going to rain. They're scratching their heads and their superior human intellect wondering, what's that? Well, I'm going to build a boat. What's that? And so by faith, simply doing what God told him, responding to divine revelation, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And so as you, un, as you believers rejoice in your refuge, in your ark of safety because you've placed your faith in Christ, cuts both ways. That ark of safety for you is a sealed judgment for those that have not bowed to Christ. Those that won't have Christ now, as Lord, will face Him as judge because you've rejected Him as your ark of safety. Humble yourself. Cry for mercy. Though I'd endorse chicken little zeal going around compelling people, His message is wrong. The sky's not falling. Peter says it's on divine reservation for fiery judgment. Might that be a warning 
that you respond to by placing a faith in Christ or that motivates you in your evangelistic zeal and this purifying hope. Father, we thank you for Christ in whom are found all the treasures of heaven. We thank you for divine revelation that tells us not only how you created everything that is out of nothing and how that you judged through a worldwide flood the wicked intentions of man's heart that was only evil continually. But yet by your grace you've told us it's going to happen again. Judgment is coming. Though it's not by water, it will be by fire. Might sinners through that message flee to Christ? Might it be a purifying hope for those of us that are in Christ? Putting off sin for the glory of our great King, seeking to live credible, consistent testimonies before a watching world who would be more inclined to believe in our Redeemer if they saw our redemption lived out. We'll give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen.